Hello guys and warmest welcomes from a gloomy and pissing down with rain North Wales to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales one-person spare room-based true crime podcast that looks at the more often forgotten, macabre and obscure cases of true crime from all across the UK and Ireland. Bringing these to your ears is me, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are of course you guys, it's great as ever to have you joining me here today. And as you're hearing me saying that, then I hope that you're all safe and well. So we start as ever with a thanks for the feedback and discussion that the previous show episode, Noise, has brought. It was an absolutely unreal tale, that one, isn't it? I'm very, very surprised that it isn't more familiar, that one, given the gravity of Barry Williams or Harry Street, wherever you want to call him, given the gravity of his crimes. Now, it was an interesting one to research, and I gather it was one that went down quite well with you guys based on the feedback that I've had, so thanks very much, folks. Cheers also this time around to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, and I know I'm playing catch-up a bit here, but shout-outs are going out to Gillian Andrews, Angela Biesti, Sean Astley, Amy Schommer, Joanne Parlett, Chris Lomas, Sean Gibbs, Lauren Morris, Rachel Gibbs, Roy Lai, Joanna Wilson, John Lloyd, Monica Bounds, Bobo, Lucy Clark, Jessica Scott, Ashley, Terence Winship, April Clements, Carrie Perdue, Angela Marie Morn, and Marie Davis. Apologies if I've pronounced anybody's name wrongly there. What else can I say except thanks so much guys, your support is so very much appreciated and I am extremely grateful. Now stuff's gone out for some of you, I don't know when it will reach you exactly because it depends on the bloody Armageddon doesn't it, perhaps it already has to some, but one thing I know will reach you and I hope that you've all had a chance to catch up with is the extra enthusiast episodes that you get for being a Patreon supporter. Now I've released a few throughout Covid to help everyone pass just that extra bit of the lockdown, but there are still some 20 unreleased bonus episodes that you can be hearing for less than the price of a pint each month. So if you want to join these kind folks that I've mentioned, quicker than Harry Maguire causing a scene in a Greek restaurant, by simply heading over to the Patreon site and seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, remember that podcast suffix, you can be hearing bonus feature-length episodes such as The Bravo Two Heroes, Devil in the Doll's House, Operation Magnesium, or the latest one that was only just very recently released, A Lonely Death on Gun Hill. In fact, you don't even need to go and seek the show out. Just head over to the episode show notes and there's always a link to the show's Patreon page provided in there. I'd also like to remind that I'm constantly curating cases for the show's listener episodes. So if you have a case that's always interested you, it's perhaps a local one to you or one that you may even have a connection with, it does happen that, that you think could fit the enthusiast and you want to research and write it up, then by all means please do get in touch you won't find me ungrateful. There will be our traditional listener written episode before this series is out, alongside the fabulous ones that we've already heard from Julia and Jackie this series, and I have had some really interesting suggestions that I know right now are being looked into. But until then, you have yours truly writing, sorry guys, and the case that I've researched for this episode. Now I found the case this time around, a fascinating tale when I came across it, it was one that was completely unfamiliar to me and it's one that I believe really does provoke food for thought. For this tale we're off first back to 1979, 
Although a lot of the events mentioned within the episode take place almost a decade before, and to the town of South Shields, the largest town in the UK area of South Tyneside in the north of England, where it's reportedly, and it's somewhere that I've never been so I don't know, but it's reportedly so cold that you could open a tin of beans with your nipples there. What an image, eh? Don't try that at home folks, or do if you want, whatever floats your boat. So pop trivia for the episode then. South Shields was the location of the world's first lighthouse designed and built to be powered by electricity, which was opened in 1871. And famous people who hailed from there include one of my mum's favourite ever authors, Catherine Cookson, half of chart-topping girl band Little Mix, comedian Sarah Millican, director of epic films such as Alien, Blade Runner and Gladiator, Ridley Scott, and my favourite out of the bunch, Monty Python legend Eric Idle, because I'm an absolute massive fan of the Pythons. South Shields is also the location of a horrific crime that came to light only several years after it happened, that led swiftly to an arrest, a conviction, and years later, a reinvestigation by investigative journalists making a current affairs programme, which we shall not bugger about procrastinating about any longer, and you'll hear all about now. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or upsetting, so as always folks, please use discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at a case I've entitled, The Torso in the Tank. When it was in existence, tank number one at the former Velva Liquid Storage Depot in the town of South Shields, in the Tyneside area of the northeast of the UK, could store within nearly a million gallons of fuel oil, a storage container for various cargoes of petrol or chemicals that were deposited into it from the various ships that would tie up on the once busy shipping waters of the River Tyne. Now today, the Velva Liquid site no longer exists, the once predominant sextet of large storage tanks having been replaced some years ago now by a housing estate and luxury development. But when it was in existence, it was a constantly busy place, the levels and contents of the tanks regularly chopping and changing due to supply and demand. With these regular changes came the need for periodic scheduled cleaning of each tank to avoid contamination issues, a time-consuming, dangerous and unenviable job as you can imagine, with fumes and darkness and crap. It's not something that you'd fancy doing at all, is it? And on Sunday the 24th of June 1979, it was the turn of tank number one to be cleaned for the first time since the late 1960s, after which it would need to lay fallow for several weeks before being refilled. In preparation for this task, a small hatch at the bottom of the empty tank had been removed to allow engineers access in to perform cleaning, and just before 3pm that afternoon, three Velva Liquids engineers, Mick Mallonby, Eddie Dawson and Billy Knott, were preparing to undertake the task. As Billy, whose role it was to pass the other two men the necessary tools for the job from outside the tank, as he looked inside and his eyes grew accustomed to the darkness of the 40-foot deep container, about six feet to the right of the hatch, he saw what he thought was a plastic bag in the metre of sludge that remained in the bottom. He drew this to the attention of Mick Mallonby, who waded through the sludge and retrieved the bag. Only for a blackened, 
what appeared to be a child's torso, the arms still attached but twisted, to fall out of the bag when he did so. How fast would you be out of there then, eh? All three men were out of the tank sharpish and within moments were on the telephone to police. Shortly after 3pm, Inspector Ian Duncan arrived at the Velva site where after donning breathing apparatus, he was shown the grisly discovery by Eddie Dawson. A further search of the tank sludge revealed a smaller parcel across the other side of the tank, wrapped in a canvas material. It was securely fastened with a length of cord, and Inspector Duncan undid the knot to see what the parcel held. Now things were not improving, because it held a dark, collar-length-haired human head. Two days later, after which an examination of the tank when it had been cleaned had revealed no further body parts, a preliminary examination of the remains began, undertaken by Home Office pathologist Dr. Harry Chandra Ranasingh. Because the remains had been deeply immersed in alcohol, it had preserved them to a remarkable extent, but it had also made them a severe hazard, so these examinations had to take place in the open air. It was to be a full five days after the discovery that a full post-mortem could be undertaken, the remains only then deemed safe enough to examine by that time, and then only in full protective clothing and breathing apparatus to avoid risk of petrol and lead contamination. The post-mortem and some remarkable work went into this based on the scientific capabilities of the time, revealed the remains to be those of a young woman aged between 16 and 20 years old, but estimated to be closer to the former of these in her teens. Her height was estimated to have been about 5 foot 3 inches tall, her hair had been shoulder length and auburn in colour, she had had pierced ears as an earring was found entangled in the hair, and she had at some point in the distant past fractured her right collarbone. She had also had her appendix removed. Cause of death was determined to have been due to, I quote, bleeding and concussion from a head injury with lacerations of the scalp and depressed fractures of the skull. Six devastating head wounds had been discovered to the girl that had shattered her skull, thought most likely by Dr. Rana Singh to have been caused by a blunt object such as a steel riveting hammer when she was in an upright position, before her body had then been dismembered with a sharp knife. It had been severed into three parts, cut at the waist and at the neck, and there had been an attempt to bisect the torso further, with evidence of a vertical cut along the breastbone. But the legs of the body were not with the two other grisly parts, indeed, the legs were never found. No evidence of bleeding associated with these cuts was found to be present, suggesting that they had taken place some time after death, but various particles of stone and coke were found embedded in the girl's flesh suggesting that the dismemberment had taken place outdoors, possibly at a location on the coke barrier that surrounded the Velva liquid site. Due to the condition of the remains, he could not define how long they'd been in the tank, but he could say with some certainty that the girl could have been murdered as far back as 1973, or perhaps sooner. But the vital clue as to the identity of who this poor girl was came from an examination of her teeth. Dr. Derek Jackson, an odontologist, performed an examination of these at the same time as the post-mortem and discovered that the girl had had an abnormality in several of her teeth, 
having extra cusps on the biting surfaces. Whereas most of us have a conventional four or five on most of our teeth, this girl had six, whilst on other teeth, as opposed to the normal two, there were three. Taking this into account and the very high fluoride content found in the teeth, Dr. Jackson concluded that this could only have been achieved if the girl had been brought up in an area that had provided a high fluoride water supply for a considerable time. And the only area in the northeast region that fitted that bill was the area encompassing South Shields, Hebburn, Jarrow and Sunderland. He was certain about this, his report concluding with the observation, In more than 25 years of clinical practice, I cannot recall another example of such teeth. Now having defining parameters, a search was on through missing person files for a teenage girl living locally who'd been missing for some time, and shortly, one person came to attention who fitted the bill perfectly. A 17-year-old girl named Eileen McDougall, who'd gone missing in January 1970. A check of Eileen's medical records revealed that six years before her disappearance in 1964, she had fractured her right collarbone whereas in 1969, she'd had her appendix removed. Further, Eileen's six siblings, when they were examined, all had the same additional and unusual cusps on their teeth, and to top it all off, Dr. Rana Singh had managed to carefully extract the skin of the right thumb of the body, enough for a fingerprint to be taken from it. With a strong suspicion as to what they would find, this fingerprint was compared with a thumbprint found on Eileen's 1965 school report, and eight points of comparison were found to match between the two. It wasn't the 18 points that a court would demand as proof, but when taken into account with the other findings, it was enough to satisfy police that the remains in the tank were indeed that of Eileen McDougall. It was thought possible that they could have lain in the tank for nine and a half years, so Eileen's killer had almost a decade head start on police, and with such a cold case, they looked at the only possible avenues of investigation that they had, her remains themselves, the scene of the crime, Velva Liquids, and Eileen's life prior to her disappearance. The dismembered body had to have been deposited into tank number one by means of a front hatch across the top, a circular lid about two feet across that was accessible and easy to open. The access panel at the front couldn't have been removed whilst the tank had been full as it would have caused a massive memorable spillage and the remains would have surely been discovered sooner. They could also not have been filtered in from a pipe attached to the tank from a ship as these pipes were too small in diameter to have carried such a grisly cargo. But to access the top panel, the killer would have had to climb a series of side ladders on an adjacent tank, walk across its roof and onto a catwalk, then onto the top of tank number one, suggesting a killer with a very familiar knowledge of the site. It wasn't considered to be an opportune hiding place. Police surmised that whoever had deposited Eileen in there had known that her remains would remain a secret for a considerable time as the tank was not due to be cleaned any time in the near future. The items found with the body and the suggested murder weapon also tied in with Velva liquids too. Several of the types of hammer thought by Dr. Rana Singh to have been the likely murder weapon were used regularly at the site and were in abundance there, as was the cord and the packaging, material known as gland packing, and the canvas that had been used to package the head. 
but these items could just have equally come from any of the ships that docked at Velva, and equally, the exact location of the murder could not be ascertained. For although there would have been massive evidence of blood loss from the murder and the dismemberment wherever it had happened, this was almost a decade later where traces of it would be long gone. So police turned their attentions to Eileen's family life and the life she'd led before her disappearance. Eileen was the fifth of seven children, six daughters and a son, that had been born and raised at number seven Hogarth Road, a house on the Whiteleys estate in South Shields, the other end of the town from Velva Liquids. Home life hadn't been too happy, with Eileen's father William spending long periods away working as a tank cleaner. When he was home, he was a heavy drinking, heavy fisted, argumentative man, and as Eileen's siblings grew, each of them took the first opportunity that they could to leave home and start afresh. With such a turbulent home life, it inevitably began to affect Eileen, leading to her rebelling somewhat and becoming a bit of a tearaway. At first it was being placed on report in the school, Brinkburn Comprehensive, for several different incidents, which graduated to a number of suspensions, and eventual expulsion, aged 14. During this period, she also ran away from home on a number of occasions, being reported as missing to police at least four times. And by 1969, the year before she went missing, Eileen also had a criminal record, having been convicted of the theft of a handbag and placed on probation. She spent as little time at home as she possibly could, being a regular visitor to her sister Elizabeth's flat in Urfa Terrace in the Law Top area of South Shields which Elizabeth shared with two other girls, Mary Bell and Anne Sutherland, and from where Eileen began to make herself a new circle of friends. An attractive girl, she had a ready string of admirers and found herself popular, shall we say, with boys that she met, having a string of casual boyfriends at just 16 years old. Eileen would also go missing for days on end, and during these times, it was not always established where she'd been staying. A focus upon the crucial period before her disappearance revealed that Eileen's whereabouts for a couple of weeks in early December 1969 were unknown, but that around the Christmas period, she had travelled down to the Maidstone area of Kent to spend Christmas of that year with her brother Billy, who was a serving soldier in the Royal Engineers, and his wife Marie. Marie liked her younger sister-in-law and enjoyed having her to stay, even giving Eileen some of her clothes to keep and it seems that Eileen's stay in Maidstone was initially considered to have been more of a permanent one. She'd stayed there over the Christmas and New Year period, and according to her brother, had even found herself a job in a Maidstone brewery at the very start of 1970. But almost as soon as she'd started here, Eileen began staying out until midnight almost each evening, and then without warning, after only a few days in this role, gave the job up. After some suggestion from Billy that she should perhaps return to the South Shields area, which Eileen reportedly accepted quite happily, he took her back up to South Shields on the train on Friday the 16th of January 1970, which corresponded with him having a period of weekend leave that he planned to spend back in the northeast catching up with old friends. Upon arrival back here, Eileen, complete with two plastic carrier bags filled with her clothes, left Billy outside a favoured pub of his, the Ship and Royal, in the town centre, and headed off. 
Now, wherever she was heading, she hadn't disclosed to Billy on the journey up, but wherever it was, it was close by. For just 30 minutes later, Eileen was seen by someone who knew her in a different pub, the Douglas Vaults, in a different outfit and without her bags of clothes. There can be no mistake that it was a different dress to what she was wearing when she travelled up, as the new dress was a startling number that was see-through and made of lace, revealing Eileen's underwear quite openly. Eileen's sister Elizabeth remembered seeing her dress like this in a pub on the Friday evening, and then subsequently in a South Shields nightclub called Latinos the same night. Now Eileen left the club with a boyfriend of hers and went back to his house until about 2am on the Saturday, but she didn't spend the night there, and it is unknown where she stayed after she left his. Later that Saturday afternoon, Eileen's mother Agnes ran into her in the former Woolworths department store in the centre of South Shields, although she hadn't returned to the family home by that point, and her movements following this could not be ascertained until the last place she had been seen alive, HS Edwards Street, at the home of another boyfriend of hers, a man named Graham Aitken. Eileen had arrived at Graham's door at about 2.30 that Sunday morning, soaked to the skin and having changed her clothes once again somewhere, this time wearing just a t-shirt and jeans. She told him that she'd been, I quote, thrown out, although she didn't say where from, and Graham had taken the girl in and they went to bed together. However, at 7am that Sunday morning, Graham's father had discovered the pair in bed together, and following the almighty row as a result of this, Eileen had gathered up her still wet clothing and fled from the house. This was the last time Eileen had been seen alive by anyone who knew her, apart from her killer, and the last time she was seen before her pathetic remains were discovered in tank number one at Velva Liquids nine and a half years later. But less than a month after Eileen's remains had been discovered and her decade-old movements had been painstakingly established, police believed that they had her killer. It was somewhat of a jump to believe this, as I'm sure that you'll see. When Eileen's sister Elizabeth, who looked very similar to the murdered girl and was only a year older than her, had moved into the flat in Urfa Terrace in 1969 that she'd shared with Anne Sutherland and Mary Bell. I must stress, by the way, not the infamous Northeast child killer Mary Bell, someone totally different. The three girls had found themselves a babysitting job in South Shields for three young children in a house on nearby Anderson Street, quite near to the town centre. They had been hired by the children's father, a man named Ernest Adolphus Clark who had separated from their mother and who had sole custody of them, to care for them while he worked rolling shifts as a plant engineer half a mile away at Velva Liquids. It later transpired that Eileen would often accompany her sister and co when they were looking after the Clark children. Now putting two and two together and coming up with here we are, here was a definitive link, however tenuous, between Velva Liquids and Eileen McDougall. In fact, what police came up with was, we've got our man, which was a direct quote from an account of the police investigation that was later written by one of the police officers who'd been assigned to investigate the case. But Ernest Adolphus Clark, or Ernie as he was more commonly known, 
didn't jump off the page as a hammer-wielding maniac and butcher of a young girl, Eileen's likely killer. A West Indian of origin, born in the island country of St Kitts and Nevis in 1930, Clark had come to the UK in 1963, where he found work on a South Shields oil installation working as a pipe fitter for a firm called Tubecraft Limited. Tubecraft was taken over by Velva Liquids in 1966, and the hard-working Clark, always regarded as an impressive worker by his bosses during his time working at Tubecraft, was also offered a job by the manager of the incoming Velva Liquids, the fabulously named Douglas Moon, which he accepted. By that time, Clark had met his wife, a South Shields girl named Jenny Duncan, and the couple had a young family of three children, two girls and a boy, so the offer of a decently paid role at a place he was already familiar with appealed to Clark greatly. And from 1966 to the 27th of January 1970, he worked at the Velva site just off River Drive, so he could be placed as working there when Eileen McDougall had last been seen. Police jumped upon the fact that Clark had left employment at Velva so soon after this, less than two weeks, as meaning only one thing. His guilt had forced him to quit, and he wanted to put as much distance between himself and Velva as he could. Now here, there are conflicting reports as to why Clark left Velva that I discovered whilst I was researching the episode. Accounts exist that say Clark left of his own accord in protest of being passed over for promotion to site foreman that would have brought with it a pay increase. But most common reports are that a workmate of Clark's, a man named Ronnie Embleton, who'll come into the tale a bit later on, was already lined up for this promotion and Clark felt so strongly that Embleton was unsuited for the role and that it should instead go to another worker, a man named Brian Fenwick, that he wrote to his manager Douglas Moon suggesting this. Now apparently this didn't go down very well at all and was classed almost as insubordination, leading to Douglas Moon terminating Clark's employment for questioning his judgement. Get over it, Doug, you bloody dictator. By this time also, Clark and his wife Jenny had divorced, with neighbours telling of months of furious rows that they would hear coming from the couple's then home in Headley Street. She'd left and Clark had retained sole custody of the children. Following his release from Velva, Clark remained in the South Shields area for the next nine months, working for a period at Tyne Dock Engineering, and towards the end of 1970, he and his children had moved down to the city of Hull for a fresh start, where he eventually bought them a mid-terraced house on Hull's Kingsbench Street, number 51, and found himself a job as a process worker in a fish meal factory, a job which he'd held until being made redundant in March 1979. He'd married once again in 1971 to a woman named Linda Scott, although this marriage was to break down after four years and culminated in divorce in 1976. But he remained in Hull, where he was well-liked and regarded by workmates and neighbours, and remembered as being a devoted father and a smart dresser and good-looking man who enjoyed the company of women and the occasional flutter on the horses. Clark and his children were still living somewhat contentedly in Kingsbench Street when police came knocking on his door on the afternoon of Thursday the 12th of July 1979 in connection with the murder of Eileen McDougall. When police questioned Clark, he willingly admitted having formerly worked at Velva Liquids 
and that he'd tenuously known Eileen McDougall. As her elder sister Elizabeth had used to babysit for him, and Eileen would occasionally come with Elizabeth and her flatmates to look after the children. But then the questioning reportedly took a bit more of an accusatory tone. Clark was asked about his sexual preferences, to which he again reportedly made no bones about saying that his preference was for young white women between the ages of 16 and 21 and furthered that he'd had sexual relations with both Elizabeth McDougall and Anne Sutherland, I quote, many times, perhaps being genuine, perhaps showing off somewhat. But he denied ever having sex with Eileen. Clark was taken back to South Shields Police Headquarters, where police further looked into his past. They found the history that I previously described from him coming to the UK, but there was no evidence of Clark ever having a history of violence. Indeed, the only time he'd ever been in trouble with the police was in the late 1960s, when he'd been charged with the theft of a post office bank book and had been fined £50 as a result. This was it. Apart from this blot, Clark was to all appearances a man of good character and reputation. But police thought that was a load of old cock and by that time had already begun constructing a theory about Ernest Clark's involvement in the death of Eileen McDougall. His familiarity with the only crime scene that they had to go on, Velva Liquids, and his knowledge of the murder victim, Eileen, was too much of a coincidence, they reasoned. They believed that due to the proximity of Clark's then house in Anderson Street, this was where Eileen had gone to change her clothes into the revealing lace see-through dress, and was where she'd ultimately slept on that Friday night stroke Saturday morning. They furthered this by considering that there'd been a row of some sort between Clark and Eileen on that Saturday night, and he'd told her to leave, perhaps if she rejected his sexual advances, say. Cold and soaked to the skin, she'd wandered around South Shields until in the early hours, she had knocked at the door of a casual boyfriend, Graham Aitken, and had been taken in by him. Aitken admitted to police when he was spoken to that he and Eileen had engaged in sex in the early hours, before his father had caught the couple and Eileen had rushed out at 7am. Had she then gone back to the house of Clark and finding him at work had made her way to Velva? Had they then rowed further and Clark had subsequently killed her, dismembering and dumping the girl's remains in the tank later on that morning? Bit of a jump that really, isn't it? But police were not to be deterred from this, and the day after he was arrested, Clark was further implicated, at least in the minds of police, by unsubstantiated gossip that had come to their attention concerning him from his former workmates at Velva. There were stories of Clark passing around self-taken pornographic pictures, not your standard 1970s hairy muff jazz mags that knocked around every working men's tea and restroom of the era, but that depicted his former wife Jenny engaged in sexual activity with other women, as well as tales that on several occasions, Clark had been seen by the Velvet Depot Gates talking to young teenage girls aged between 15 and 17 in a manner that suggested he knew them very well, very well but it's still a jump really, isn't it? But new evidence was to change the line of questioning that police had taken against Clark, and it came from Ronnie Embleton. Now Embleton was, as you recall, the workmate of Clark's whose promotion had, on account, led to him leaving Velva. And when he'd been spoken to by police concerning Clark, 
now recalled some unusual events from around nine and a half years previously, taking place, he thought, around the time of the murder. On the eastern edge of the Velva site stood a smaller storage tank than the opposite tank number one, tank number four, and Embleton recalled that one day he'd passed Clark on his hands and knees in the space underneath this tank, which stood some five feet off the ground supported by three brick walls and had two open-ended channels running from east to west. He noticed Clark was adding bricks to the western end of the channel to the left, though Embleton was unable to recall if he was cementing these in or not and he remembered the occasion because he couldn't see any purpose in what Clark was doing this for. On another occasion that he estimated to be around the same time, he'd seen Clark apparently opening a valve on the same tank to flood the underneath channel with a chemical called sterile alcohol that was kept in it at the time because tank number four was one of only two on the site with the capability of keeping the chemical warm to ensure that it remained in a liquid form as when sterile alcohol cools, it sets with a consistency similar to candle wax. More science with a true crime enthusiast shortly. Underneath Tank 4, in a search following Embleton's recollections, police did find more than 5 tonnes of this congealed waxy sterile alcohol, which was dug out and melted down. It was possibly hoped that this would provide the missing legs of Eileen McDougall, but these weren't found. What was found, however, were the remains of an article of clothing that was determined to have been a girl's blue sweater. The jumper was heavily saturated with a sterile alcohol substance, and when examined, it had been slit along both arms and vertically up the back, although there was no sign of any blood staining to it. As though it had been cut off a dead body, police reasoned. When the item of clothing was placed onto a mannequin of a similar size to Eileen's build, it was found to fit it perfectly. Her distraught family could not confirm the garment had been hers when they were shown it, but they did say that its style and colour were of one that Eileen had favoured, and would conceivably have worn. So with Clark's link to Eileen, to Velva Liquids, the tales of his unusual behaviour underneath Tank 4, and the discovery of a blue sweater underneath, cut up with a sharp knife. As far as police were concerned, that was all she wrote. On Monday the 16th of July 1979, Ernest Adolphus Clark appeared at South Shields Magistrates Court, charged with the murder of Eileen McDougall, on a date between the 1st of January 1970 and June the 25th 1979 where he was surprisingly granted bail, but on condition that he surrender his passport, provide sureties of £6,000 to the court, which ultimately came from the proceeds of selling his house, and report to a police station in Hull on a daily basis. He was still waiting for any committal hearing come January 1980, when his solicitor William Duffy wrote a scathing communication to the Department of Public Prosecutions, expressing his opinion that by that time, they should have had ample time to prepare their case against Clark, and not keep requesting a further four weeks extension to bail each time. Basically, pull your finger out of your arse and either proceed with committal to Crown Court for trial, or offer no evidence and let him go. It was actually Monday, April the 21st, 1980 that Ernest Clark finally appeared once again at South Shields Magistrates Court, where he was committed for trial at Newcastle Crown Court 
scheduled to begin six weeks later at the beginning of June 1980 and was remanded in custody to Her Majesty's Prison Durham. When the trial of Ernest Clark opened at Newcastle Crown Court on Wednesday the 4th of June 1980, he pleaded not guilty to the charge of murdering Eileen McDougall, but from the off, there were several factors that weighed heavily against him, and although a piece of evidence that was stressed to the jury in the prosecuting counsel's opening remarks was the following day discounted, it had been put out there and the idea must surely have remained somewhat in the jury's collective thoughts. Prosecuting counsel Brian Walsh QC told the jury that in addition to the jigsaw of evidence that they would hear of, in the eloquent way that I always find impressive that these legal eagles use, they would hear an admission by none other than Ernest Clark himself of his guilt. Oh yes. A serving prisoner in HMP Durham, Alan de Gleish, told the court that whilst Clark had been on remand in Durham Nick, he'd admitted his guilt and the crime to him, claiming that Clark had said, I did it, but they'll never prove it after 10 years. Now a sensational start to any trial as you can imagine, and I did it was the headline leading all of the trial's coverage in the following day's local newspapers. But the same day, Clark's counsel was alerted to the fact that Daglish had a history of mental instability, therefore making him an unreliable witness. When his medical records were obtained and checked, the defence counsel, Humphrey Potts QC, now approached the prosecution and disclosed what had been discovered. Mr Walsh then once again checked with police, discovered this to be indeed true, and agreed that Daglish's evidence must be withdrawn. Following a statement read out to the court that claimed Daglish was inclined to invent things that weren't true, his word was deemed unreliable, and his evidence duly discounted. But the seed had been planted. Also possibly going against Clark was his admission that he'd had sex with both Elizabeth McDougall and Anne Sutherland, which both girls, when called to court as witnesses, vehemently denied. Why should this have gone against him? Now I'm not suggesting for a second that this happened of course, but a possible reason that it may have is you have to consider the time of the trial, the beginning of the 1980s. This claim of Ernest Clark, an older Afro-Caribbean male having sexual relationships with white teenage girls, may not have gone down too well with an all-white jury. We are talking more than 40 years ago now after all, and back then it was a society that was arguably more prejudicial, still equally as multicultural, but not as equal or harmonious as we are today or sadly, still considered aren't in the light of recent events. I'm sure you know what I mean. Now, I don't know whether this would have or not, but it is, of course, a possibility. So it was established at the trial that Eileen had, without a doubt, been murdered, you think? And that the balance of probability was that this had occurred around the 18th of January 1970, the Sunday that she'd left Graham Aitken's house at 7am. It was pointed out to the jury that her murder possibly could have occurred after this period, but that as Eileen would likely have been seen around South Shields beforehand if it had been at a later date, it was considered that the Sunday was the most likely date. But this was just hypothesis. So far, the jury had just the two certain circumstantial facts, that Clark knew Velva Liquids and that he knew Eileen. 
but the most significant evidence the jury were to hear came from Clark's former workmate, Ronnie Embleton. When cross-examined by Mr. Walsh, Embleton described to the court how he'd seen Clark shutting a valve off underneath Tank 4, demonstrating on a photograph the level that he'd filled the Channel 2 with sterile alcohol, before describing how he had also, on a separate occasion, witnessed Clark bricking up the channel underneath Tank 4. When he'd asked him why he was doing this, he told the court that Clark had not explained his actions, but had just fobbed him off by saying, that's nothing man. He could offer no explanation as to why Clark had done either of these actions, as there seemed to be no valid reason for him doing so. Although Embleton was of the opinion that each of these incidents had occurred relatively close to one another, and that they were near the time Clark had left Velva Liquids in January 1970, he could not recall which had occurred first, the flooding of the channel or the bricking up. So why did these seem so important? Because of the jumper that the court alleged had been cut from Eileen's body that had been found underneath the tank saturated in sterile alcohol. Considered a serious hazard, it was nevertheless to be produced in court as an exhibit, Exhibit 28, as well as the jury being shown several photographs of it both laid out flat and then placed onto a mannequin of a similar size to Eileen. It was suggested to them that the murdered girl had been wearing it when she was killed and that it had been cut off her before she was dismembered, before being hidden underneath tank number four, saturated with five tons of sterile alcohol by the defendant. But for this to be accurate and associated with the murder, there was only a nine-day window in which it could have occurred between Eileen last being seen alive on the 18th of January and Clark being dismissed from Velva on the 27th, and that both Embleton and Clark were on shift at the same time. The duty time book from Velva was produced to the court as exhibit number 33, and out of this nine-day time frame, on eight of these, Clark and Embleton's shifts were separate by more than an hour, with Clark doing the morning shift 6am to 2pm, and Embleton the afternoon 3pm to 11pm shift. The one day that they could have conceivably been at Velva at the same time was on Sunday the 18th of January, when Clark had worked 7am to 2pm, and Embleton 2pm to 10pm. Mr. Potts, for the defence, pointed out that if either incident had taken place, then they had to have taken place before the 18th of January, when they were on shift together, to which Embleton agreed. When Clark appeared in the dock to give evidence on his own behalf on the fifth day of the trial, he admitted what he'd told police, that yes, he'd been having regular sex with Elizabeth McDougall and Anne Sutherland throughout 1969, which he couldn't explain why they were denying, and that he indeed knew Elizabeth's sister Eileen, but that he had categorically not killed her, telling Mr. Walsh, why would I, what's my motive to? He further denied ever having had any sexual relations with Eileen, the same as he'd told police, and when asked this in court, replied, no, not underage, I never fancied her. He furthered that she'd also never visited his house alone, saying that she would have had no reason to, and denied that he would have flooded the channel underneath tank 4, telling the court, you just don't do that, open a valve and waste liquid like that. Concerning the jumper found underneath tank 4, Clark claimed that any articles of clothing found would be merely just rags, 
and explained that workers at Velva used these regularly to wipe their hands free of grime and oil before discarding them. He admitted under cross-examination that he had told police during an interview that had he been going to dispose of a body, he would have burnt it in a furnace rather than put it in a tank of alcohol, but once again emphatically denied killing Eileen McDougall. Clark claimed that he'd not tried to deny anything or had hidden anything from police and had told the court the entire truth. Following the jury, counsels, Mr Justice Caulfield and even Clark himself being taken to Velva Liquids by coach where they were shown from a viewing platform both tank number one and tank number four before a return to court on the sixth day of the trial. On day seven, Mr Justice Caulfield began his summing up. In this, he impartially reviewed the various statements and actions by Clark that had been presented to the court as incriminating, pointing out to the jury that there were no admissions as such by the defendant and that they must bear in mind the obvious fear and stress that he would have been under while making them, which would be natural for anyone being questioned in respect of such a serious crime that had been committed, with police viewing you as a suspect, without automatically taking this as a sure sign of his guilt. An example being the following quote from a transcription of an interview that Clark had had with Detective Chief Superintendent James Anderson following his arrest on 12th of July 1979. Anderson, from our inquiries you are the only person at Velva Liquids who knew or had any connection with Eileen McDougall. Clark, you are telling me that I am the only one at Velva that had any connection with Eileen. I am a worried man now. Mr Justice Caulfield picked the bones of this transcript apart reaching the end of his summing up, continuing to quote, Clark, do you want me to tell you that I killed her? Anderson, well did you? Clark, no, definitely not, nothing like that is on my conscience. You're not going to tie me up, I will never admit, I would rather go to the gallows than go to prison for a long time. Anderson, I'm searching for the truth. Clark, don't kid me that there is any evidence after nine years. What the summing up equated to was that there were four simple facts for the jury to consider in the absence of any forensic evidence, murder weapon or eyewitnesses to the murder. Clark knew Eileen McDougall, which he'd never denied. Clark had worked at the place where her body was discovered a decade later. If they believed the account of Ronnie Embleton, then Clark had been behaving suspiciously underneath tank number four, and that he could conceivably have placed a blue jumper that appeared as though it could have been cut from a dead body, to quote police, and that could have belonged to Eileen McDougall. Circumstantial at best, really, that, isn't it? At 11.43am on Thursday the 12th of June 1980, the jury retired to consider their verdict. Five and a half hours later, at 5.15pm, they returned with the unanimous verdict, guilty of the murder of Eileen McDougall. As the verdict was announced, Eileen's mother, in court to witness, gasped, oh my god, and burst into tears, consoled by her children. Clark blinked and then bowed his head as Mr Justice Caulfield told him, Ernest Clark, this jury has convicted you of murder of a girl named Eileen McDougall. The sentence of this court is fixed by law, as no doubt you know, and therefore I do not need to justify it, nor need I comment. 
The sentence of the court is that you will be a prisoner for life. Clark was then led away to Wakefield Prison, Monster Mansion itself as it's known today, to begin his sentence. He was to immediately launch an appeal against his conviction, and almost a year later, in May 1981, his case was heard at London's Court of Appeal. However, on Friday the 15th of May, a sitting comprised of Lord Justice Dunn and Mr Justices Milmo and Drake denied him leave to appeal. They ruled that whilst acknowledging that the conviction was based solely on circumstantial evidence, they claimed, I quote, there was no lurking doubt about the unanimous verdict of guilty that was given by the jury. However, Clark was only a couple of years later to get another party, a powerful one, championing his cause. For more than 25 years from the early 1980s until 2007 when it was cancelled, the BBC used to air an investigative journalism series called Rough Justice that would investigate criminal cases where there'd been an alleged miscarriage of justice and a wrongful prosecution leading to several people wrongfully serving lengthy or life sentences. Devised and produced by investigative journalists Peter Hill and Martin Young, working in conjunction with Tom Sargent, the law reformer responsible for the creation of the Human Rights and Law Reform Organisation Justice, Rough Justice examined many cases, the majority of which were not high-profile ones, and during its run was responsible for having a role in overturning the convictions of 18 people involved in 13 separate cases where miscarriages of justice had occurred. At first part of the BBC Current Affairs Department, the first few series of Rough Justice had a very serious, very formal style with investigative procedures that brought into the reinvestigations the then latest forensic science techniques and methods, as well as new means of obtaining important documents and exhibits. Each case was always followed up thoroughly, and remained a focus of the programme until it had gone through means such as petitions to the Home Office, right through to the Court of Appeal. Now personally, I love this formal style of investigation, like Crime Watch used to be until it went all arty and standing around with graphics and then the smug twat from Radio 2 began presenting it weekly, you know what I mean, I'm sure. And there are several episodes of Rough Justice which are available online for viewing that you can have a look at to see what I mean. It's got a very memorable theme tune I always thought as well. There are also two excellent books of the series that I recommend, the second of which has been such a fantastic source whilst researching this episode. Anyway, the BBC eventually cancelled Rough Justice. I know what you're saying, it's not like the BBC to cancel something that does good and is a worthwhile show, but cancel it they did. I don't really need to say anything to that, do I? But I will, just because I feel I hardly have this series. BBC, you twats. So following his conviction, Rough Justice took up the case of Ernest Adolphus Clark and made a reinvestigation into the strength of the evidence that had convicted him. The findings posed food for thought. His was a difficult case that they very nearly didn't take on, thinking that there was nothing for them to reinvestigate. No discernible scene of crime or photographs, no witnesses, no forensic evidence. Indeed, the evidence against Clark was, on the face of it, largely undeniable. He'd confirmed he'd known the murdered girl, he unquestionably was familiar with the Velva site layout and worked there at the time, and there was no reason to suggest that the evidence of Ronald Embleton was anything but genuine, 
he'd gone to the police with his recollections of the two incidents involving Clark that he genuinely believed had occurred around the time of Eileen's death and had highlighted the place at the Velva site where the blue jumper was subsequently found. But it wasn't as cut and dried as that, for Rough Justice picked massive holes in this evidence that destroyed at least one of the prongs of evidence against Clark, the blue jumper. And it's almost time for another science lesson. While searching through the report of the exhibits officer in the case and cross-referencing it against the scientist's report, there was found a discrepancy against the number of samples of wax taken from underneath tank number 4 at Velva. The former had a supplementary page annexed to it that detailed four samples that had been presented to the court, exhibits 99A, B, C and D, whilst the scientific report detailed six exhibits 99A, B, C and D, plus two earlier samples, 93 and 94, which were described as wax from the right and left channel respectively. These were the only two samples to be specifically listed as to which channels they'd been taken from. Now the jumper had been found underneath the wax found in the left-hand channel, and according to the scientist's report, was saturated with sterile alcohol. Now whilst exhibits 99B and C that were presented to the court were predominantly sterile alcohol, Exhibits 99A and 99D were predominantly laurel alcohol, similar looking substances but chemically poles apart. So tank number 4 had contained two different types of chemical at differing times, so the search was on to see what exactly had been stored in it in January 1970. The records that would show this were not readily available for examination, and working from memory, both the four-person at Velva and the manager of Lennox, the company whose chemicals it was that were stored at Velva, believed that laurel alcohol could have been at the site from any time between February 1968 to August 1972. But the general manager at Velva, Douglas Moon, had stated to police in his statement in 1979 that sterile alcohol had been stored in tank number 4 from September 1968 until August 1969 categorically because although he died since the trial, his wife, who was also his secretary, confirmed that when he had made his police statement, he'd had the records in front of him to ascertain this. Rough Justice made stringent inquiries into this, even checking with the Port of Tyne Authority records, and it was established from these that there had been no sterile alcohol freshly shipped to Velva between March and December 1969. A shipment of laurel alcohol had been made there on the 12th of December 1969, which the Velva shipping book confirmed. Finally, at their urging, Velva Liquids contacted police and asked for the return of the tank records, which were sent by return of post. Examination of these confirmed beyond doubt that until April 1969, sterile alcohol had been stored in tank number 4. It was cleaned that month, then lay fallow until August 1969, when 3,500 gallons of laurel alcohol was added to it. It was established later that following August 1969, there was never any sterile alcohol held at Velva. So if the jumper was connected with the death of Eileen McDougall, then how did it become saturated with a chemical that wasn't there in 1970? The dog in the nighttime moment, that, isn't it? Dr. Patrick Toesland, a senior toxicologist and consultant biochemist at London's Guy's Hospital, had been brought on board by the Rough Justice team 
and performed his own examinations on the exhibits aforementioned, the wax samples that had been admitted from the trial, and the blue jumper. He even visited the Velva site himself during his investigations, and the findings from his final report can be summarised as follows, I quote, The jumper was immersed in sterile alcohol. There is no evidence of gross contamination with laurel alcohol, and these findings indicate that the jumper had been in intimate contact with commercial sterile alcohol and could not have been soaked in liquid laurel and subsequently pushed into a melted layer of sterile. The alcohols are not interchangeable. They will remain very stable, even over the timescale involved in this case, and they are not transmutable into one another. When he was shown the official records of tank number four, Dr. Toseland added, The jumper could only have been in the channel at the time sterile alcohol was poured onto it. Wherever this jumper came from, it appears to me to have nothing to do with the death of this girl, considering the relative times of the laurel and sterile components in tank number four. This is one of the planks of evidence against Clark, and I think this demonstrates that this plank is removed. So if I can have your essays in by next episode, that would be fine. Thank you very much. Rough Justice, and they're almost up there with Crime Watch this lot, also managed to source almost definitely what the jumper actually was and its origin. As we said previously, the workers at Velva used rags known as industrial wipers to clean the manky hands, which Velva at the time bought wholesale from a South Shields company named John Cowies. Cowies in turn bought their supplies from a Dewsbury rag cutters named Beaumonts, and Rough Justice discovered when they visited here that all items of old clothing to be cut up for industrial wipers were cut the same way from the machine operators, slit up the arms and back, exactly how the jumper thought to have been cut off a dead body had been. I'd say that was pretty much destroyed as an indicator of guilt there. Ronnie Embleton was confronted with this evidence about the contents of the tank and was reportedly off sick for three days. So shocked was he that his admittedly unsure recollection had inadvertently helped send a man to prison for life. He said later, In all honesty, I couldn't say when the incidents of bricking up and running off wax happened. It's within that period of time, but if there hadn't been sterile in there for nine months, I honestly thought it was shorter, you know. Time plays funny things with your memory. He also said that he'd always had a sneaking suspicion that he'd been wrong, telling the journalists, You know, I always thought the sun was shining when I saw Ernie running off the wax. It was a warm day. On the 19th of January 1970, the temperature in South Shields had been 7 degrees centigrade. Bikini weather up in the northeast, I'm sure. So the team now looked at the available evidence that may prove Clark's innocence, and to do so, they looked at both sides and tried to construct a scenario where Clark murdered Eileen on that Sunday. There was no reason to suggest that Eileen had died any later than the Sunday, the 18th of January, even though the medical evidence showed that she could have died as late as 1973. But then, where would she have been for three years, without being seen and having no contact whatsoever with her family? having been reported missing to police on Thursday the 22nd of January 1970. So Eileen left Graham Aitken after being slung out by his dad at 7am, the exact same time that Clark had started his shift that day at Velva. 
He wasn't likely to have been late for work because he'd been spoken to recently about his poor timekeeping and was being kept an eye on, so Say was there on time. Say also that Clark's house is where Eileen had been thrown out of, as she told Graham Aitken in the early hours of that morning, where she'd been staying. If she had gone back to his home, she either had a key to it or she didn't. If she had a key, she would surely, cold, have gone immediately there to change her wet clothing. Plus she would have been remembered because someone, be it Elizabeth or Anne, would have been babysitting the Clark children at that time and they hadn't seen her. So in this scenario, say she didn't have any means of access to his house, she would have had to have walked down to the Velva site and wait at the gate for him, where she again wasn't seen, no one remembered seeing her. But assuming that she had gone there and got onto the site, then sometime after this, Clark would have had to have picked up a hammer that was lying around and strike her viciously from behind with it while she was standing or sitting at least six times. It would have left an enormous amount of blood, none of which was remembered being seen at the site, and for what reason? Then he would have had to cut up the body once it was stripped with a very sharp knife on rough ground, as evidence from the stones and particles of coke that were found embedded in Eileen's flesh. There was no rough ground at Velva not open to public view from the river or neighbouring hills, but say that he managed to do this without being seen. He would then have had to cover up the massive blood loss from the body, some five pints of it, then having done so, face the problem of disposing of the trisected body parts. Now two of them, the head and the torso, were placed into tank number one, we know that, but why not the legs also? They were never found. It was considered a massive risk to have tried to do this in broad daylight, as we described the tanks were difficult to access, especially with such a macabre heavy bundle, and were overlooked from a massive hill at the rear, which at the top had a busy thoroughfare comprising a housing estate, a bus terminus and three pubs, as well as a lookout station for Tyne river pilots who kept watch on the river all day. So, did Clark then try to hide the body parts somewhere on site, awaiting his return that night to dispose of them under cover of darkness? The body parts showed no signs of being buried anywhere for a time, and there was nowhere in the storage compound that Clark could have feasibly hidden three bundles without risk of discovery, but just say that he'd managed to. He would then have to return to the site under cover of darkness on that Sunday, it being far too risky to have left them hidden any longer, and dispose of them. Now there was a security guard on duty at Velva of an evening, and he would undoubtedly have known Clark at once, because he worked there, but say he managed to do all of this without being seen. So why then put the body parts, well two of them anyway, into tank number one, still on the Velva site? And why not the legs also then? It makes as much sense as a bloody perfume advert that, doesn't it? Now, in the Rough Justice book that chronicles the reinvestigation, they pose the question, if Clark had not killed Eileen, then who else possibly had? There doesn't seem to have been much of an investigation into this possibility by police, really, and they do seem to have jumped on Clark as the guilty suspect somewhat right away. So what if someone else had killed her? What was the reason for such a savage death? There was plenty about Eileen's life around the time of her death that remained a mystery and gave a glimpse into another possible circle of society that she was mixing in that a killer may have come from. 
If it hadn't been Clark's house that she'd been thrown out of early that Saturday morning, then where had she been? Wherever it was, it was likely to be the place where she'd left her clothes that Friday, somewhere only a short distance from the town centre also. As as we've said, she'd changed into a see-through lace dress somewhere on that Friday afternoon before she was last seen in a half-hour time period, and she didn't have her two carrier bags of clothes with her. No one who saw her that last weekend she was known to be alive recalled her asking for lodgings for the evening until Graham Aitken took her in because she'd been thrown out. She was also wearing jeans and a t-shirt that evening too, so she must have been back to wherever her clothes had been left at some point to get changed. At first it was considered that this place may have been the home of a friend of Eileen's, Helen Howes, who lived a few miles away from Eileen across South Shields and it was later ascertained from Helen's father John that Eileen had indeed stayed here with them for a period of about 10 days. At the time, November 1969, Eileen had a job at Plessy's telecommunication factory in South Shields, and Mr Howes would drop her and a neighbour off each morning as he passed the factory on his way to work. However, he'd taken Eileen back to her mother's because he discovered that Eileen was not actually going into work after he dropped her off each morning, and as a result her wages were being docked for non-attendance. With no means for her to pay her keep, back home to her mother she'd gone. So where was Eileen instead of in work? Now it was discovered that for a period of about three weeks at the start of December 1969, up until Christmas of that year, Eileen's sister Elizabeth had had a flat at number 6 Eastbourne Grove in the town. Eastbourne Grove no longer exists today, having been knocked down at the beginning of the 1980s to make way for redevelopment in the area. Now Elizabeth had reportedly not made any mention of this flat in any of her statements to police, perhaps not having deemed it important, or for whatever reason, who knows. It struck me that either Eileen or Elizabeth could have possibly been involved in sex work, but who knows, there's no evidence to suggest this, but it would explain the purposes of a flat, and it may explain what Eileen was doing instead of being in work, but that's just me thinking out loud really. While there were no reports of Eileen having been seen there, for this could have been the mystery December hangout in her sister's mystery flat, there were certainly reports of her being seen five doors along from there at number 11A Eastbourne Grove. Now number 11A was a basement flat that seemed to have been a bit like a squat, something of a free-for-all hippie commune with all sorts of beatniks coming and going and all manner of backdoor shenanigans going on within. Reportedly, sometimes up to 30 people would be staying here at one time, bringing with it a massive drug haven that was a popular one in the area, and a bit of a sexual free-for-all that would rival afternoon tea at Ken Barlow's. You've got to get a mention of the K-Dog in when you can, haven't you? Eileen was remembered as being seen here on several occasions. One former regular visitor to the flat, a woman who was spoken to for the Rough Justice programme, was certain that it had been her and not her sister Elizabeth. Although the sisters looked very much alike, the woman was certain that the girl had been Eileen. Now places such as this that bring drugs and a free living lifestyle also inevitably bring with it an element of danger, and at least one woman spoken to for the programme described how she was one evening attacked in the flat and savagely beaten by a man there. No one was ever named, but it was reported in the book that the man, although he was never brought to trial for this assault, 
was by 1983 serving a life sentence for murder. Who knows who that could be, eh? So there was somewhere back in 1970 that Eileen could have slept that wasn't a sister's or a boyfriend's or Clark's house, and it was a place that you could describe as a dangerous environment. Was this where she was during the period she was missing in December 1969, and had she been here on the Friday before she was last seen? Did someone connected with here kill her instead for some reason? Rough Justice offered up the following theory, and considering it, I'd go so far myself to say that it is indeed possible and is indeed logical. The point of the River Tyne near Law Top, the, the hill that overlooks Velva Liquids, was particularly deep with a strong tide, and it was at this point that the former Velva Liquids site had a jetty with breakwaters underneath it that jutted out into the river. Although a part of the Velva site, the jetty had for many years been a particularly popular spot for fishing, reflected in the open space nearby that had been used as an informal car park since the 1930s for persons to come and go. Security of Velva at the time wasn't like the Pentagon. So say someone who had killed and dismembered Eileen, for whatever reason, wanted to dispose of her body somewhere deep and fast-moving, where a strong current would take the body parts away, say off the end of the Velva Liquid jetty. On the night Eileen had last been seen, high tide of the river was at 1am in the early hours of that Monday, and the water there would have been some 40 feet deep. Had a killer driven to the car park with a trisected body, wrapped in readily available materials to do so, and had already disposed of the poor girl's legs, when on the way back to collect and dump the rest, was disturbed by a party of night fishermen sneaking onto the jetty, as was commonplace. Now trapped inside the Velva site with two parcels that he needed urgently to get rid of, and unable to go onto the jetty, did the killer then head for the part of the site the furthest away from here, tank number one, and dispose of the head and torso inside there in a panic? Because if it had been someone authorised to be on the Velva site, such as Ernie Clark, then surely he could have just ordered the fishermen off for trespassing, and once they'd gone, could simply have dumped the rest of the body parts into the river, never to be found. Why else were those legs not found with the rest of the body? Rough Justice did present their findings to the Department of Public Prosecutions, and following the programme airing, in 1985 the case was indeed reopened and sent back to the appeal court based on the findings of the programme. However, following a two-day hearing at London's Court of Appeal, on Wednesday the 5th of February 1986, Clark lost this second appeal after presiding Lord Justice Lawton and Mr Justices Mars Jones and Davis told the court that even after acknowledging that the jumper evidence had now been proven irrelevant, I quote, it was inconceivable on the evidence that anyone other than Clark was responsible for the killing of Eileen McDougall. Yes, indeed. Later that same year, on Wednesday the 6th of August, amid tight security and handcuffed to a prison officer at all times, Ernest Clark married for the third time to a former neighbour of his, Mary Sands. The two had been friends and former neighbours on South Shields' Headley Street when Clark first came to the UK in the mid-1960s, and Mary had followed news of his arrest and trial before tracing him through the prison system 
and writing to him some years later in 1985, expressing her belief in his innocence. Correspondence had blossomed into a romance between them, and Clark had proposed to her by letter, which Mary had accepted. A year to the day that she first wrote to him, the two were married in a short ceremony in a Durham register office, before the marriage was blessed in a service back at HMP Franklin by prison chaplain Michael Dixon, the prison where Clark was incarcerated at the time. By November 1994, Clark was being held at Lindholm Prison, a Category C-D institution near Doncaster in South Yorkshire, but was by this time being prepared for release on licence. By then 63 years of age, suffering from angina and serious respiratory problems, it was a combination of good behaviour and poor health that were major factors in the parole board agreeing his early release, and on the 5th of December 1994, Ernest Clark was released, having served 14 years imprisonment. Following his release, he was reunited with Mary, and the couple returned to live in her home in Wallsend, North Tyneside. Now one book that I used while researching the episode claims that to gain parole, Clark must have admitted culpability in the crime, as to gain reclassification from being a Category A prisoner. The system states that guilt should be dictated and contrition and reformation undertaken. Or was he reclassified simply due to his good behaviour, his age and his infirmity? If Ernest Clark is still alive today, and I couldn't ascertain whether he is or not, but if he is, he will be fast approaching 90 years of age, a grandfather, perhaps even a great or great-great-grandfather by now. But if he is still alive, then he's never publicly spoken about the crime or his imprisonment since his release. Wanting to forget his guilt, or not wanting to discuss his wrongful imprisonment perhaps. What do you think? The Torso in the Tank is a case that I came across while looking into a different one last year and it went straight onto the chalkboard. A perfect fit for the enthusiast I thought, whose time to be told just happened to come around now. And a macabre case indeed, isn't it? But a quite remarkable and fascinating one. But the first thing that struck me about it was, how sad, how tragic for a teenage girl to end up murdered, dismembered and discarded in such a foul location. It just boggles the mind and my heart went out to her family and loved ones. So please take with you from this episode thoughts first and foremost about Eileen and her family. The arrest and conviction of Ernest Clark got me thinking also and it raised loads of questions for me. Was it a massive leap for police when they found any connection between Velva and Eileen and they were blinkered as to any other possibilities determined that they had the killer? Or was it perhaps as simple as it reads and they did have the right man and you can say that because legally speaking Clark was the killer of Eileen McDougall. He was found guilty at trial and two subsequent appeals couldn't change that. It would seem highly unlikely that he would be convicted today based on the evidence presented that did convict him, but back in 1980 that was deemed enough, clear cut despite there being no discernible motive, no forensic evidence or no witnesses. Yet rough justice came along a couple of years later, looked that little bit harder into everything and found that it wasn't as clear cut after all. They managed to discredit one of the main pieces of evidence against Clark, the blue jumper, Highlight that Eileen was on the fringes of a darker, more dangerous element of society. 
examined the methods and means that Clark potentially employed to kill Eileen whilst pointing out their impracticality one by one, and offered a decent hypothesis, I thought, about the killer's likely actions, providing a possible explanation for the thing that made me ponder the most and surely should have made the investigating officers, the judge and the jury do the same. Why were the legs of the body not with the rest of it? Why dispose of two parts one way and the third another? But as this was not enough to overturn Clark's conviction, he remains in the eyes of the law as the person who killed Eileen McDougall and who placed a dismembered body into tank number one. No one can say for certain as to whether Ernest Clark really was the killer of Eileen McDougall. No one except Clark himself. And as we said, if he's still alive, it's surely one chapter of his life that he would desperately want to leave behind. So what are your thoughts then on the torso in the tank case? Clear as crystal or clear as mud? If you get chance to, the Rough Justice book is well worth a read if you can get hold of it, because I've only briefly summarised in the episode the reinvestigation. It's worth reading for yourselves to see the depth that they went into. The Rough Justice documentary concerning the case, The Case of the Confused Chemicals, is also available for viewing and a link to it is contained within this week's episode show notes along with several contemporary newspaper articles that are used for research purposes. I'd be fascinated to hear what you guys think as always, and surely by now you know where you can get in touch to do so, the nice shiny thread up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media. As I keep telling you, I'm always happy to discuss and debate absolutely wherever with you lot. With that, I'll bugger off now and keep the true crime merry-go-round rumbling along, Cracking on with the next tale, which I hope to catch you for. Same bat time, same bat channel. I thank you very much for joining me here today as ever. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys good and safe times. Stay safe out there all. And I'll speak to you very soon. Take care folks, and goodbye for now.